Well, guys, good morning. Happy Sunday to you. Thank you guys so much for being here. We're continuing our series, Investigating Jesus. And the, the question I want us just to think about this morning, and I don't want us to answer this out loud, but I would like for us to think about this. If your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? Now, we know there are some commercials that have nothing to do with the product they're advertising. And there are some commercials that are really good. But if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? And in the meantime, as we think through that, uh, last week we kicked off our series with this question. If the Bible provides an explanation to us about God, like it explains to us who God is, his character, his nature, explains our purpose, why we are here, then why are people doubting, deconverting, deconstructing, or even dismissing faith? Like, what if our faith was not tied to a, a denomination? It wasn't tied to what life was like growing up or going to church or being baptized as a baby. What if our faith was anchored in something that didn't shake? It wasn't built on a personality, a pastor. It wasn't based on what life was like growing up. See, what is our faith the foundation of our faith is centered around one person because i've known people who've walked away from faith because their faith was built on circumstances when everything was going great they were in church but man the things when things began to fall apart they fell away from faith see the foundation of our christian faith is anchored in something far more substantial far more sustainable, in fact, something that we can investigate. See, our faith rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, doing the impossible. And if you're curious about faith, if you're returning to faith, or maybe you find yourself losing faith, then here's the question to wrestle with. Isn't, is there a God, or is the Bible true? Those are good, important questions to ask. The most important question we ought to be asking as we're investigating Jesus is this. Is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote reliable accounts of actual events? Because listen, if those are not true, then there's no reason to be here. There's no reason to have faith. Because this whole book hinges on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if his resurrection never happened, then man, let's go do something else. And I hope, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, my hope for you is that, that this will reassure you, that this will deepen your commitment, your love and appreciation for God. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to explore Luke's account of Jesus' life. So last week we kicked off in the first couple of verses, and now we're going to be going into chapter 3 as he begins to give more of the backstory. Now Luke is named for its author. Luke wasn't even a Jew. In fact, Luke wasn't even one of the 12 disciples. Luke came along after the resurrection as a follower of Jesus. He was a Greek. He lived in Syria. And we're going to refer back to that. 
Look, I don't write. <laughs> the only things I write are messages and love letters to Jenny. I don't write. I'm not a writer. I, in fact, I don't even like to write. But for my friends who are writers, the thing that they have often told me is getting the first word, getting the first sentence, getting the first paragraph down sort of sets the tone on how their writing is going to go. Notice what he writes. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's like, listen, many people have wrote about the life of Jesus. Many people have wrote about it. And with this in mind, I myself carefully have investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so Luke is saying, I, I want you to know that I wasn't copying what Matthew and Mark and what John, what they wrote. No, no, no. I did this on my own. I met with them. I interviewed people who were the characters of Jesus's life and the, the story that I'm about to write, his biography. These people were a part of that. And I, and I spent time and I wrote this. This is my own writing. This is my own, this is my own pen that wrote this. And through my investigation, I believe what I'm about to write is true. I believe it's history. And Theophilus, which means friend of God, was probably a wealthy Roman official who was a follower of Jesus from Syria. Maybe he paid Luke or financed this endeavor. I have no idea. But we know somehow they were connected and he was writing Theophilus, Jesus' biography. He wanted him to know, listen, you can know with certainty that these things happened. Listen to Luke's introduction. It's not once upon a time as he's introducing us to John. Remember, John is the, the opening act, the pregame, the warm-up to, to Jesus. And instead he's saying, listen, this is history. Fact check me. And in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, patriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, patriarch of Iteri, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, patriarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And all of those names, check out, there, are arche there is archaeological discoveries proven these men lived during the time of Jesus. And he's introducing us to John the Baptist, and he's a historical character with a special role in Jesus' life. So first century Jewish historian Josephus references John the Baptist, and Josephus wrote a history of the Jews in 90 AD, which was about 60 years after John died. And John the Baptist made such a stir in Judea that Josephus could not exclude him in his history. So Josephus tells that King Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Tatriarch, decided to gently and quietly divorce his wife to marry his brother's wife. Can't make this stuff up. His wife got wind of it. She fled to her daddy, who was the king of the Arabs. He declared war on Herod and defeated him. And this was the context of Josephus' reference to John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. And he writes this, Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, 
and was a very just punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist, for Herod had him killed and in fact beheaded. Although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exhort themselves to virtue both as to justice towards one another and reverence towards God. Herod had him beheaded because he preached against what he was doing, divorcing his wife to marry his brother's wife. And this was John's legacy for 60 years after his death. He was famous, and Luke weaves him into the biography of Jesus. So notice how he continues. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Jews did baptism, but now he's taking it out of the synagogues and doing it in the river. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. And so John the Baptist's job was to create a sense of expectation for the coming Messiah. That something and someone new was coming, and you don't want to miss it. And word got back to the people or the temple leaders about what John was doing. And so they would travel to see John, who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And so he sees them coming, and this is what he says to them. You brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's what snakes would do. They would flee a burning field. He's like, listen, you snakes, don't come down here hoping to check a box. Don't, don't say, well, I, I'm here because I'm born in Abraham's family. There's more to this than just being born a Jew. It's impossible to live on someone else's faith. He's letting them know, man, listen, if you want to be right with God, you have to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It means you have to walk your talk. Be doers of the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Uh, you know, the first five books of our Old Testament. Not respecters of the Torah. The days of reducing religion to tradition are over. If you don't repent, he's saying, when the new that God brings when the Messiah shows up, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss him because you are not living in sync with God. And he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, that seems a little weird to us. But he's saying, listen, don't comfort yourself and hide behind Abraham as your spiritual father. And John may be referring to the Greek mythology that God would raise people from stones, which, again, Luke's a Greek. He's saying, listen, if you think the metric that gets you right with God is that you're part of Abraham's family, he's like, then God could just get these stones to become children of Abraham. He says, you're missing the point. See, what, what would John say to us? Well, what would he say to us? We live in a very consumer-oriented comfortable convenient marginally committed christianity maybe he would maybe it would go like this and do not say to yourselves but i'm a christian like i prayed the sinner's prayer i, I got baptized as a baby I, like, I grew up in church i go to church my my parents my grandparents they're, they're christians like I, i'm good right he says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up Christians. He, he reminded them, he reminds us that, man, our lives are supposed to be worth something worth advertising. 
He's trying to get them out of their apathy, out of their self-made religion. And he's saying, listen, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And John wasn't discounting the value of being a descendant of Abraham or discounting for us growing up in a Christian home or that our parents or our grandparents go to church or that we, we grew up in church. His point is that that's not the point. It's not the finish line. That's the starting line. Our starting point, as Luke reminds us throughout his biography of Jesus, is Jesus. Jesus is our starting line. And it's difficult to produce fruit with sin in our lives. It's difficult to produce fruit when you're already at the finish line. Now John's point is someone is coming. The Messiah, he's coming, he's going to change everything. And if you're not ready, you're going to miss him. And if you miss him, you're going to find yourself at odds with God. And in the meantime, if you do belong to God, he says you should be producing fruit. And fruit means that I can no longer do my own thing. It means i got to do God's thing. And we use this, this old theological word called repentance. It means I'm turning from my way of doing things, which leads to sin, which leads to unhappiness, frustration. And instead, I'm going God's way. I'm living out God's design. And that, at times, is, takes sacrifice. It's inconvenient. It might cost more than you think. See, our faith produces fruit. And we all know that fruit needs rain and sun. And there's going to be times that if our faith is based on circumstances, that means if it's rainy, we walk away from faith. For some of us, we just want the sunny days. We just want the good days. But what does that do to our faith? It doesn't really strengthen our faith. It really doesn't get us to depend on God. See, faith is about dependence on God. When we produce fruit, it comes out of our faith. It comes out of our dependence and trust of God. Fruit is doing things. And notice what they asked John. John, how do we prepare for this new thing that God is about to do? And he said, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. He's like, I just don't want you to sit idly by, sit on your hands waiting for the Messiah to come, but you ought to be doing something about it to show that you are, that something has changed in you. It doesn't save you. It's just evidence that you already have been changed. That I'm not working for something, I'm working from something. And they're like, listen, you want us to share? <laughs> you, that doesn't seem very religious. Like you really can, you, get, I mean, you just want us to share? He's like, yeah, I want you to share. If you see a need, meet the need. Food was scarce, it didn't keep well, it was hard to transport. And he's like, listen, still share food. Because... God was about to do the same for us. He was about to do for humanity what humanity couldn't do for our own. We could not meet our own need. We were in need. And so the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, what should we do? He said, don't collect any more than you are required to. 
he told them. John didn't tell them to quit their jobs. He didn't tell them to quit their profession. Why? Because that wasn't their identity. It was a means to an end. It was a way to make a living. He knew that their identity was whose they were. And he told them to stop stealing, not to settle for what's legal or permissible, not to settle for standard operating procedures, do something notable, noticeable, and noteworthy. He said, listen, do what is just, not what you can justify. And then, not only did the tax collectors come to be baptized, but the soldiers asked him, okay, what should we do? Like, we want to be ready. We don't want to be just sitting on our hands waiting for the Messiah. What do we do? He said, don't extort money. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Soldiers that Rome had hired from Syria to reinforce Roman law, they were there. They were, on, they were at the Jordan River enforcing Roman law. And they were not happy. They were getting low pay. And so they would extort people to get more money. And he's telling them, stop it. Do what is just. Not what you think is justifiable. Don't abuse your authority. Don't abuse your power. Use it to do right. And this teaching was so disruptive. It was so upside down. But yet it was so refreshing. And people often wondered, okay, John, are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? And maybe perhaps he grinned in between eating those honey-glazed locusts and that thought, are you kidding me? I'm not even close. We're, we're getting started, and I'm the pregame. I'm the warm-up. I am the opening to the main person. He says, I baptize you with water. But the one, the Messiah, who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of those sandals I am unworthy to untie. And John is super clear. See, that's what, that's what slaves did. They would untie the sandals of their master, of their owner, of the king. And he says, listen, I'm not even worthy to do that. And to sum up John's teaching, he says, listen, as we wait for Jesus to come, we need to do three things. Be generous, be honest, and be content. And by doing these three things, it allowed people to be known as generous, honest, and content followers. Remember our first question I asked us to, to ask? If your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? Are you advertising the convenient, comfortable, requires very little of you version of faith? Or are you advertising the committed, inconvenient, sacrificial version of faith? Because I want us to... I want us to challenge ourselves to ask the question that John's audience asked. Remember how the tax collectors and the soldiers, what they asked, hey, what should we do? Obviously, we, we don't sit on our hands waiting for the Messiah to come. What do we do? What do we do? What should we do? And the question reveals that they understood they had something to turn from. They couldn't keep on living the way they were living because it was outside of God's design. It wasn't fulfilling them. It wasn't satisfying them. So the question is revealing that I need to repent. I need to change. I need to stop doing things and start doing things. But John's response, it wasn't deep teaching. There were deep actions. He's saying don't substitute deep teaching for following Jesus. Doing is deep. 
and it deepens our faith and dependence on God. Doing is where and when we see God at work. Doing is messy. Doing is costly. And most of us know that doing is life-changing and joy-infusing. And if we continue to be hearers and consumers only, man, we're in the danger zone. And eventually, we'll become so consumed with ourselves that our faith withers. That we find ourselves deconstructing. We find ourselves dismissing. We find ourselves deconverting. We find ourselves doubting. And Jesus said, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Hey, we're family. We're family. And John knew that if people in his audience did compassion, acted selflessly, and put others first, they would recognize God's work in the world and embrace the selfless, others-focused Messiah. And so I want to challenge us to pray this every day this week. Heavenly Father, what should I do? Because there are some things that we need to turn from. There are some things that we are doing that is causing tension in our lives, that is causing our marriage to be upside down, is causing our relationship with our kids to be tumultuous. There are things that we're doing that is causing more chaos, that's causing more harm than good. Guys, believers didn't, challenge, didn't change the world. Doers and followers changed the world. It was men and women whose lives advertised God's kingdom and God's will being done. And so will you ask, Heavenly Father, what should I do? And maybe that means for you, maybe changing, repenting, seeking God for forgiveness and seeking forgiveness of those you've hurt. What does it look like to be generous for you? What does it look like to be honest? Going back to the three things that John talked about, generosity, honesty, and contentment. What does it look like for you to be content? And there's a next step for all of us. And if we do, guys, I believe that our hearts and our eyes will be open to what God has next for us and what he has for our church in this community. And so before you go, there are three questions to keep the conversation going. How has your faith been positively and negatively impacted by your encounters with other Christians? Regarding your faith, have you become more consumer or advertiser? If so, why and what needs to change? And how and where is your faith on display? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to investigate and dig a little deeper into Jesus' biography. I'm so thankful that Luke included John's part of Jesus' story because it reminds us that as we're waiting for our king to return that we cannot sit idly by we ought to be doing things that our faith should be a faith that works now we're not doing it to get extra credit for you, from you or we're not trying to do it to get something from you but we're doing it because we've been saved from something and we've been saved to something and all we are doing is saying to our king, King, I'm all yours. What do you need me to do? So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to say, all right, God, what do you want me to do? Maybe for those who are new to faith or maybe those who are on the verge of committing to Jesus, I ask that, man, that you would help them answer that question of what they need to do. Help them to see who Jesus is that Jesus is their only hope, 
And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, help us to know that this is a life of repentance. This isn't a one and done thing. This is a life of repentance. Help us to constantly be growing and deepening our faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.